came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 2nd of August. 2018. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, research astronomer, author and presenter of television Stargazing Live. And that's followed by University Toxicology Lecturer, Amateur Astronomer and Astrophotographer, Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame, who will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the evening, night and morning skies for the next two weeks. He takes us on an astronomical tangent, and we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights, featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's cross now to speak with Dr. Lisa. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Brendan. Great to be with you. How's it going? All going very well here. Today we are awed to be speaking with one of the icons of modern astronomy, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, astronomy researcher, author and presenter of ABC television Stargazing Live. She uses the world's largest radio telescopes to study the life cycle of stars and develops new world-leading precursor telescopes building the Square Kilometre Array. She has a doctorate in radio astronomy and masters in physics with honours in astronomy and astrophysics. She has scores of refereed journal papers to her name and her first book, When Galaxies Collide, was launched yesterday and you can order the paperback or digital version from Melbourne University Press. She has won the Eureka Prize and CSIRO Chairman's Medal and runs a popular international astronomy distant learning course. So, can you tell us about growing up in Essex in England, leaving school at 11? And please tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And did you have dark skies in your backyard there in Essex? Well, yeah, Brendan, I was very lucky as a kid, I guess, that I grew up amongst nature and we lived in a little village called Wethersfield, which is just north of London by about 50, 60 kilometres. So we had a bit of sky glow on the, the southwest horizon. But generally, we were pretty good up to a, a point. So, you know, just by chance, we looked at the stars occasionally. And it wasn't really till I was about 12 that I got really interested in astronomy because my dad showed me this newspaper article about the planet Mars, and it said you could see Mars 
up high in the sky and you didn't need a telescope. And of course, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with how bright Mars is, particularly um, recently. It's, it's been towards opposition uh, last week and it's closest approach, so it's very, very bright. But I had no idea as a 12-year-old kid that you could see it with the naked eye. We really got into astronomy, my dad and I, and I really took it on as a, a wonderful hobby and started astrophotography. Never had a telescope because we didn't really have enough cash, but just used binoculars on my naked eye and I really enjoyed it as a hobby. It was, it was fantastic. And as you alluded to, I didn't go to school um, from the age 11, which is a bit unusual, but quite a few kids are homeschooled. The local school wasn't really something I, I fancy going to. So I learned a lot about astronomy, a lot about philosophy and history and other subjects that I found interesting. So really my, I guess my career in astronomy started from there. Fantastic. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? They did. When I was a kid, I was quite practical and quite sporty and outdoorsy. So some of my early aspirations were really to be a police officer. I remember that way back. And I think I wanted to be a park ranger in a national park as well. You know, these people who tramp across hills and do lots of outdoorsy things. And I think that was probably because, you know, those were my passions and interests. But as I got into astronomy, I started to realize that this is a real job. And I, I saw people on television shows like Tomorrow's World, things on the BBC um, growing up in the UK, that showed me that there were real people who were scientists. And I'd never met anyone who was a scientist and I'd never had access to that kind of world. But I could see that that was a possible career for me. I think that's one of the reasons why, as my hobby became a real passion that overtook me, I realized that I could be a scientist as well. And I think that's one of the reasons as well that I like to be on television and, and talk to people about astronomy, to show them that astronomers are real people and they don't have to be massive brainiacs, they're just real people who have a passion. Fantastic. Then you went on to earn your master's degree in physics with honours in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne and a PhD in radio astronomy from Jodrell Bank Observatory at the University of Manchester. Then on to the Max Planck Institute for radio astronomy in Germany and then the Joint Institute for very long baseline interferometry in Europe, the JIVE, and that's in the Netherlands. Then... You moved to Australia to make it your home base about 10 years ago. Can you tell us how that big move came about, please? Well, I loved Australia as a kid because I used to watch shows like Home and Away, and it sounds ridiculous, but, <laughs> you know, as a kid growing up in a cold country with lots of cloud cover, this was a glamorous place. And um, it wasn't just that, though. It was the, the history of radio astronomy in particular in Australia and um, it has a rich history and your listeners will know about the Parkes Radio Telescope, the DISH, yeah. um, an absolutely iconic telescope that's been around for 50 years, just more than 50 years now and it's been improved and improved and it's still the world's leading single DISH telescope in many respects. So, you know, things like that really drew me to Australia professionally as well as the personal reasons of, you know, a nice climate and a wonderful country. So. I was very, very happy when I saw a job um, advertisement for a postdoctoral research fellowship at the University of Sydney. That was just about 10 or 11 years ago now. 
I applied and I was very happy to, to get an offer. We jumped in the plane and <laughs> never looked back, I guess. It's a very, very good story. I love, love being in Australia. That is fabulous. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your work as the CSIRO's ASCAP project scientist, leading a group of 30-plus scientists to develop the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder telescopes, an array of 36 12-metre dishes in a remote and necessarily RF quiet zone in outback Western Australia. The Australian SKA Pathfinder Telescope is so exciting and we're at a crucial time right now. We've built all 36 dishes out in the remote Murchison Shire, which is a shire with no town, um, has a population of 120 people <laughs> and a size uh, one third bigger than the Netherlands. So it's, it's an absolutely enormous region, very few people living there and it's a perfect place for radio astronomy because we're well away from all the trappings of civilization, towns and cities, which spew out these horrible radio waves, as we're doing now. But, you know, it's been a great project to work on. Um, I've been involved in some way for the last 10 years, and I've gone from, you know, looking at the building of the dishes themselves, um, the, the development of the supercomputing facilities, and right through now to the early science program, which I'm involved in doing a project with a PhD student that I supervise called Shannon Melrose. He's at University of New South Wales. And we're working towards looking at very distant galaxies and finding black holes and weighing those black holes, determining their masses throughout the history of the universe. So it's looking at how galaxies evolve and how they join together. When galaxies collide, they, the black holes form um, larger black holes inside the centres. And, uh, you know, I've gone through that whole process from the very beginning. So, yeah, it's been a, a great pleasure to, to work on this project. And we're just going to expand in the future to create the, the very, very exciting Square Kilometre Array project. So, you know, the sky's the limit, really, at the moment. And we're going great guns. Fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. We have featured the SKA in quite a few previous episodes, and it's a wonderful billion-dollar project that's already producing groundbreaking science. Now, let's move on to your book that was released yesterday, When Galaxies Collide. It's a fabulous achievement and much, much more than two galaxies colliding, of course. Let's go through a few themes in your book. Can you tell us about your underlying theme of our human connection to the night sky and how when we look at the sky, we're really walking with our ancestors? I believe that astronomy isn't just about science. It's not just astrophysics and, you know, interesting uh, intellectual pursuit. It's really a human pursuit. And I've always felt, as an amateur astronomer, before I became a professional, that, that it really touches me to learn astronomy through the history of astronomy. We always learn the constellations and, you know, we, we might learn the, the ancient Greek and Roman names for stars and the, the Arabic names for stars. And all of that connects us with our ancestors, but also on a personal level. You know, my dad showed me the stars when I was younger, and I never knew till recently that his dad had shown him the stars when he was a kid. He never even mentioned that. And it made me realize that even though I'd never really met my granddad, he died sadly when I was very young, a baby. My granddad and I were connected in a love of astronomy, 
and that have been passed through the generations. And, you know, the stars are, are really a way for us to travel through time, not just because when we look through space, we see distant objects and we see them as they were millions of years ago. We can travel through time that way. But on a personal level and on a human connectivity level, if you look up at the night sky today, you see it pretty much the same as it was a few thousand years ago. Um, it does change over time, but it's a very interesting thing that you can have exactly the same connection and exactly the same experience as your distant ancestors. And I find that a wonderful thing. And I think that's why it really touches us as people when we see a truly dark sky. It's quite magnificent. That's beautiful. Now, can you paint a picture for our listeners of another theme in your book, how our sky is ever-changing and even the constellations are temporary? That's right, yeah. The Southern Cross is, you know, on the Australian flag and it's one of the most famous and recognisable constellations in the Southern Hemisphere. But if you look online, you can, you can see a wonderful image, a movie that somebody's created. Um, which shows how the Southern Cross will change over the next 10,000 years, and it will be completely destroyed over 10,000 years. So really it reminds us that the stars that we see and the constellations that we see, these are very nearby stars. And as we all orbit our galaxy, the Milky Way, those stars and our star all move relative to one another and shift very quickly. So the proper motions of the stars, which shoot across the sky quite rapidly over the period of a few thousand years, means that the stars will dissolve in their shapes. And, you know, even 10, 15,000 years hence, the sky will look rather different. I found that a really interesting thought. Um, I also, in the When Galaxies Collide, go into the theme of historical understanding of changes in the night sky. So in history, it was really understood that anything that changed in the sky was really bad luck. In fact, the word disaster has its origins from the words bad star or unlucky star. So it was seen as a change in the night sky, for example, a nova, a new star or a supernova, which have been seen historically, was seen as portents of really bad luck. And often people would be sacrificed, the kings and queens would, would go um, to in, enormous lengths to try and get rid of this bad luck. Um, so human history has kind of been littered with examples of using the stars to really understand and predict human behavior. The basis of astrology, which of course we know is discredited in any real sense, but historically it's a really interesting concept, I think. Fantastic. Thanks, Lisa. Now, the title of your book is when galaxies collide, and I guess everyone's fascinated by collisions of every source. Tell us, please, about this impending collision that has already started in some ways. Can you give us a skinny on the galaxies involved, the when, the why, what will happen, and what will happen after these two stunningly beautiful galaxies collide? We have got the most exciting future for our night sky. It's not going to be just the stars and blackness. We're going to see huge changes, not within our lifetime, maybe not within humans' lifetime, but if we go to other stars and colonize the galaxy, or even if we think about other creatures living throughout our galaxy, observing the night sky, there are going to be enormous changes over the next few billion years. So we live in the local group of galaxies, 
and these are gravitationally bound together. So we're in the Milky Way. The nearest galaxy to us that's very, very big and spirally, like our own galaxy, is called Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy. And those two galaxies are moving towards each other 400,000 kilometers per hour. That is an enormous rate, 400,000 kilometers every hour. We're moving closer to Andromeda. So in about 3.8 billion years' time, which is less than double the, the age of the Earth, we will collide with Andromeda, and the two galaxies, the gravity will overtake everything else, and the two galaxies will move through each other, collide, interact gravitationally, and that will cause an enormous disruption in the gases between the stars. Now, most stars will actually collide with each other, like snooker balls, um, pinging off, but the gravitational collision will form a lot of disruption, and the gas in particular will crush together to form new stars, new very massive stars, um, things like the very bright stars in the Pleiades. Now, this will create incredible changes in our night sky. For starters, we'll have a lot more bright luminous stars, blue and white stars, supergiants, created near the Earth, and the sky will change fundamentally. We'll have a lot of more supernovae going off in the skies. So there'll be enormously bright stars shining for months on end throughout the day and the night. And our future descendants will also see the sky change enormously. Instead of just the Milky Way, we'll see huge arms and ripped apart shreds of our galaxy all across the night sky. So there'll be an enormous change in, in how the sky looks. Then when the galaxies come together and form one, the supermassive black holes in the centers will collide and a huge ripple of gravitational waves will engulf our galaxy. And then later on, the gas will be expelled from the galaxy um, by these huge jets which will push gas outwards at very close to about half the speed of light, so very, very fast. And that will kind of quench all the future star formation in our galaxy too. So huge, enormous changes. The sky will be filled with about 400, 500 billion stars, all old, all glowing faintly in orange and yellow and red, and the whole sky will be filled with this enormous core of the galaxy, which will really blot out any view of distant objects. So it's a very exciting and very dynamic situation that's going to happen when galaxies collide. Fantastic. I can hear the wonder in your voice, uh, Lisa. Sounds like it's worth hanging around for, but that's another story. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in equity, outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. Well, that's a good question what I'd like to rant or rave about. I think the most important question for us all, the collective responsibility, is light pollution. Because in When Galaxies Collide, I talk about light pollution and how it's really robbing all of us and new generations of, of the joy and wonder of the night sky. It's not really that there's nowhere on Earth that's dark, because that's not true at all, but mostly where people live, there's an enormous amount of light pollution nowadays, and it's really difficult to escape from. Around 60% of Europeans live under such light-polluted skies that they can't see the Milky Way. And in North America, that figure is 80%. Now, in Australia, we have a lot of empty spaces, which is wonderful, where there aren't many lights. 
But unfortunately, because of industrialization, 90% of us live under light polluted skies. So really, although we can drive out into the country, it's very difficult to get into a truly dark place. So I really would like us all to think how in our everyday lives we can turn off the lights, we can direct lights downwards, we can talk to councils when lights are encroaching unreasonably up into the sky. It's not about turning lights off, but it's really about directing them in the right way so that the photons, the particles of light, are travelling down to where they should be, not upwards into the sky. So I think we all have a collective responsibility to speak up about light pollution and, and think about how we could make a difference because people powered those work and let's get behind the campaign for dark skies. Fantastic. And by getting behind those campaigns, we'll enable more people to share the wonder of just looking up. So right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow at Lisa Harvey Smith on Twitter and Professor Lisa Harvey Smith on Facebook. And for Sydney Siders, she's giving a keynote talk at the Powerhouse Museum at 6pm next week on August the 10th. Anything else we should watch out for, Lisa? Well, I am very, very excited. Um, I am embarking upon my first national tour, so live speaking tour. It's going to be quite spectacular going to theatres across Australia and New Zealand, both in major cities and regional areas, so look out for that. Uh, you can look at my website, lisaharveysmith.com, and check that out, and uh, all the dates will be on there. So I really hope to see you all at the tour. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lisa Harvey Smith, ultra marathoner, which we didn't talk about, and astrophysicist. It's been fabulous speaking with you, and we'll remind listeners you can order When Galaxies Collide from Melbourne University Press. You can easily Google it with just four words, When Galaxies Collide, and Lisa, and her book comes up as number one. Great pleasure talking to you. All the best. See ya. That was great. Let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Ian, Astroblog Musgrave, and find out what's up, Doc. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's good to see you back in Adelaide after your big adventure up to your Astro Camp. So tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky is four of the bright planets are uh, doing their thing in our evening sky. Sadly, Mercury has dipped below the horizon and will turn up in the morning sky later on this month. And three of them are brighter than magnitude minus 2.5, which means they're really quite bright. Venus, of course, is gracing the early evening skies, as now can be seen well after astronomical twilight, and is very prominent, blazing blue-white dark, the early evening sky. Uh, above that is Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter's uh, at roughly magnitude uh, minus uh, 2.5 at the moment, fading from uh, its opposition earlier this year, but still excellent in the small telescopes. If we sweep our eyes up towards the uh, Zenith, you'll see the curl of Scorpius with Saturn below the uh, thing of Scorpius, but nowhere near as bright as 
the previous two. And behind Venus, uh, in an area fairly devoid of stars at the moment, is the rather unexciting constellation of uh, Capricornius the Water Goat, is our, our friend, or Capricornius the Water Bearer, is our friend Mars, shining at magnitude 2.8 at the moment. So the evening skies are, are dominated by these really bright planets. Mercury has disappeared from the evening skies and has been returned to the morning skies uh, later on in the month, but it's not going to be a very good return. In fact, it will look uh, fairly ordinary uh, and not get very much about above the horizon or even really above the horizon, murk and twilight at the end of the month. So we have to wait until September before we get all five of the unaided by planets in the sky again lining up, although this will be a, a bit better in that we'll be able to see most of the planets in one sweep rather than having to crane our neck around the entire horizon to see all of them. Very good. So it's been, a, it's, it's, well, uh, it's no longer as exciting as it was uh, in our previous fortnight where we had the opposition Mars and the longest total lunar eclipse of this century. It's still quite good uh, wandering out in the skies. If you have clear skies, which I don't at the moment, you'll be able to see Venus uh, twinkling brilliantly, then above that, uh, Jupiter. Now, Jupiter's moved a bit further away from Alpha Libre and Zubin and Lubili, but yep. over the week it will uh, come closer and closer to being double star again and uh, in a wide angle uh, telescope by places, um, the sight of Jupiter and the uh, double star, uh, Zubin and Lubili, will be uh, quite nice indeed. Speaking of, of um, planets close to the stars on the 4th of August, Venus will be very close to Beta Virginis. Now, Beta Virginis is not particularly spectacular, but it'll, it uh, will be very close to Venus, so it'll be quite interesting to look at. And again, Venus is moving towards the bright star speaker, the bright star in the constellation of Virgo, and it will be at its closest late uh, August, early September. But it'll be interesting over the coming uh, weeks watching Venus edge closer and closer. Yep. Um, now, if you've got a telescope and you're looking at Venus through a telescope, Venus is now a very definite last quarter moon shape. And as the month goes on and as the week uh, goes on, you'll begin to see it become more and more of a crescent shape. It won't become, become really distinctly crescent until um, uh, much later on. But at the moment, you'll be able to see a very definite half moon shape and Venus is becoming bigger as, uh, as well as it's moving towards its uh, inferior conjunction. So uh, it'll be uh, quite um, quite interesting to watch uh, in both visually and in telescopes over the coming weeks as it swells in size and becomes more crescent-like. Speaking of crescents, on the 14th and 15th, the crescent moon will be very close to Venus and this will make very nice observation in the uh, evening sky and again because Venus is so high you'll be able to see the moon and Venus in very dark skies quite high about above the horizon so you won't have to worry about finding somewhere uh, fairly flat to see it. These will look quite beautiful in uh, wide field binoculars or with the unaided eye. And then the moon comes close to Jupiter on the 17th so that will be uh, uh, nice to, to have a look at too. The moon, the moon will be waxing it won't get that close to uh, Jupiter, so you won't get good telescopic views. But it'll be very nice to you know, in a pair of binoculars to look at Jupiter and its moons next to the uh, waxing 
uh, moon as it's, uh, the crater is terminated. And now I mentioned uh, Jupiter is uh, coming back towards uh, Zoogle Googly, and it's at its closest on the 15th and 19th. So you may want to crack out your binoculars or uh, your wide details and eyepieces to have a look at that at that time. Very good. Yeah, and again, in the morning sky, Mercury doesn't really come back into the morning sky until uh, after the 15th. And even then, it's going to be very dim and very low above the, uh, the uh, horizon and twilight. So you're, you're not going to be able to see it until the next couple of weeks. And even then, you're going to need hard work. Okay. Is it worth us watching out for the Perseids? In Australia, the Perseids are exceedingly disappointing uh, if you're south, anywhere south of Brisbane. In fact, really, if you're anywhere south of Townsville, uh, it's not really worth it. Um, in Brisbane, uh, you maybe want to uh, have a look out for them, but you won't see very many. The Perseids are a very reliable shower, but the sad thing about them is that they're very definitely a northern shower. Their radiance is in the constellation of Perseus, which never rises very high in Australia. And for us, south of Brisbane, the radiant, that is the point where all the meteors appear to come from in the, in the sky, is well below the horizon, and you, if you're really patient, you might see one or two shoot up above the horizon, but uh, the best view will be seen from uh, Darwin and Cairns and similar latitudes. The Perseids are active uh, on the 12th and 13th, and in Australia, we're probably better to have a better view on the 13th, but you have to be up around about 3.30 in the morning. and. At the latitude of our springs, you might see a meteor every six minutes, and Darwin and Cairns a meteor or every four minutes under very clear conditions. Down to Brisbane, you're looking at a meteor maybe every 20 minutes or so. We'll give a big shout out to our friends in Europe and North America and Canada, and hopefully they'll get a good show. For them, uh, the, the moon is just off new moon, so they should have really good dark sky conditions for the Perseids. Uh, again, uh, the Perseids are above the northern horizon, just below uh, the constellation of Perseus. So they head out uh, around about a similar time and uh, face north. They should be able to see um, meteors uh, every, uh, every minute or so at least. Um, and that will, that will be very exciting for them. Uh, Australia, not so much, although I'll give out a shout out to the observers in, in Darwin and Cairns uh, uh, who, who can have a go and see some nice meteors. But uh, if you're, if you're uh, getting up uh, that hour to look at, at the uh, Perseids, you might as well uh, get your telescope out and train it on Mars. Now, Mars is past opposition. So uh, it's beginning to shrink and uh, become dimmer, but it's still big and bright. Uh, and the, there are indications that that big global dust storm is beginning to move away. So you should begin to see some uh, markings on Mars. I had a look um, last uh, Saturday, just after opposition, and Mars was incredible. It was just really big, beautiful, and absolutely smooth origin. There was a there was a sort of indication of some markings in the middle, but uh, everything else was just cut, the dust storm had just really uh, cut things out. 
but even though even with the dust storm, uh, that, that making it a little bit disappointing, it's still worth uh, pointing your scope at it and uh, and having a nice look. Um, of course, you don't have to wait until the first to have a look at Mars. Uh, if you do have clear skies any time uh, now and for, for, as for the rest of, the, of our fortnight, drag your scope out, uh, poke it at Mars and, and have, a, have a nice look. And maybe uh, you can uh, track Mars as it begins to shrink and hopefully you might be able to see the, uh, the uh, dust storms begin to abate which will make for a quite a nice view over the, uh, the coming fortnight. Fantastic, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I do, but it's a rather sad one. For those of you who are out uh, watching the uh, uh, total lunar eclipse uh, last week, I might have uh, uh, been enlivened by a, uh, an ISS pass or maybe an Iridium flare while you were watching the, uh, uh, the eclipse. Well, sadly, the Iridium flares are going to finish very shortly. The old Iridium constellation is being deorbited as it comes to the end of its life. And so we can expect that by the end of this year, most of the Iridium constellation will be, will be deorbited or moved out of, uh, out of orbit. So we won't see the flares anymore. And the new Iridium satellites have a different solar panel configuration, so they won't flare by the end of this year. We can uh, we can say goodbye to the, the beloved Iridium flares. That doesn't mean that all of our flares will be gone. Some other satellites do flares, and there's uh, prediction sites for that as well. But um, the Iridium flares were the biggest, the brightest, and most predictable. You know, for us sky watchers, that's one fewer really exciting thing in the sky to have a look for. Oh, well, there's still plenty up there, Ian. And now's a good time to remind people, if you want to find out what's going over your house, wherever you live on the planet, then Heavens Above is a great place to go. And the other one's Kelsky, is it? Kelsky.com, and that will give you predictions for both the International Space Station and all flaring satellites. Very good. And if anyone wants to know where the two Voyager spacecraft are. Heavens Above does a very nice graphic and shows you where they are in real time. Indeed. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It was a pleasure. Um, and uh, maybe everyone can uh, uh, go out this weekend and see if they can see the real flare in memory of this, this wonderful satellite uh, constellation. Excellent. Thanks, Ian. And a reminder to everyone, if if you want to find out what's up in the night sky, you can always go to Ian's Astro blog and you can get the sky charts there. You can get a summary of what's going on. It's a lovely blog, the Astro blog. It's very easy to find. Just put it Astro blog into your Google search. Indeed, indeed. Okay, thanks, Ian. I'll see you, mate. And we'll talk again in two weeks. No worries, mate. See you in two weeks, and uh, hopefully you get lots of rain for your uh, dams, uh, but uh, some breaks for sky watching. Thanks very much. We need it. And to finish up, a quick Astrophys news item. Congratulations to the brand new Chime Observatory and its FRB collaboration. 
This is via Astronomer's Telegram, number 11901 from Patrick Boyle at McGill University for the Chime FRB collaboration posted on the 1st of August. Here's the announcement. First detection of fast radio bursts between 400 and 800 MHz by Chime FRB. The Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, Chime, is a transit radio telescope consisting of four 20-metre by 100-metre cylindrical reflectors oriented north-south, located at the Dominion Radio Astrophysical Observatory near Penticton, British Columbia, Canada. The CHIME Fast Radio Burst FRB project forms 1,024 independent stationary intensity beams over a range of 400 to 800 MHz. CHIME FRB is a uniquely fast survey instrument that can search for FRBs over an instantaneous field of view of approximately 200 square degrees in real time. During its ongoing commissioning, CHIME FRB detected FRB 180725A on July 25th at 400 MHz. There you go. Another brand new instrument making breakthrough detections in the early commissioning phase. The race is on. Who will discover the mechanisms that create these mysterious FRBs? Parks? Chime? Fast? Meerkat? Or one of the many other instruments on this quest? Watch this space. See you in two weeks. Ready now,